Okay, John chapter 17. We are in this morning. John 17. And I'll be uh, praying for the nation as well after we read. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that, uh, that we would honor you this morning. Uh, I just pray for your special anointing on Mark as he delivers your word. Father, I pray for each one of us that we uh, might hear what the Spirit is saying to us and how we can implement it into our, our daily lives. Father, uh, our lives have been muddled this past year with uh, so much distraction, so much confusion, fear, Father, and I just pray right now that your Holy Spirit would bring a calm and a peace in all of our hearts, Lord, and especially want to lift up our nation to you. Lord, I just pray for your hand on our leaders. Lord, I, I just pray that you would give them wisdom. Lord, especially for those leaders that are believers, I pray that you would give them special favor to, to stand and to speak and to be heard. Lord, I would just come against the enemy right now that is running rampant, trying to rob, steal, and destroy so many freedoms and areas in our nation. Father, I just pray for courage amongst our leaders and your people. Father, just teach us how to pray during these uh, discouraging times and we see so many things going the wrong direction. Teach us to pray. Give us a, a burden for prayer. Help us to become the intercessors that you want us to be. Father, we know that the answer is found in prayer. But Lord, we also know that, that prayer leads to action. And I pray, Lord, that you would put on the hearts of each one of us what action you would have us to do to participate in, in the peace in this nation. Father, we just want to thank you for the many freedoms and the prosperity that we have enjoyed for so long. And, and we look forward to your return and, and the blessing that that's going to be ultimately. But Lord, in the meantime, I ask that you would quicken our hearts in our minds. Father, I just pray for uh, everyone to, to uh, pray from a position of rest and not of worry or anxiety or frustration. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Father, and I just thank you that uh, we know that all things will work together for good. In Jesus' name, amen. morning. So yes, this morning I'm going to be covering one verse from chapter 17. Uh, Jackie, if you're watching, I apologize because I have no idea how you're going to follow me on this. Uh, I, I struggled with 
how to uh, approach this chapter. I initially thought I could do the whole thing in one sermon. And the more I studied it, I thought, well, maybe I should split it up into three sections. And then the more I studied, I just continued to see so much depth uh, in this particular chapter that I decided to focus on verse 1. Charles Spurgeon said, Some brethren pray by the yard, but true prayer is measured by weight, not by length. Now I'm sure you've heard lengthy prayers with no weight. You know, we, uh, we see a lot of this in the world today, particularly with televangelists and, and even sometimes uh, in, in our own circles, we see people who just like to pray and pray and pray and they really don't say much. God doesn't care whether you stand or you kneel when you pray. He doesn't care if your prayers are short or long. He doesn't care if you close your eyes or if you look towards heaven. He doesn't care if your prayer is dramatic and filled with uh, Bible references. He doesn't care, as I said, if it's long or short. What he wants from us is that he wants us to speak to him from our hearts. He wants our transparent and honest thoughts and concerns. God wants to have a relationship with us. I can remember uh, when I first started in ministry, Praying in public was something that was super difficult for me. I, I felt like I needed to do the, oh, heavenly father kind of prayers, you know? And, um, and so it was hard for me to just say a prayer. And then one day, I was running a Celebrate Recovery group at the time. And uh, at the end of the group, we would always offer the opportunity for each person to go around the circle and pray. And sometimes people would pray, and sometimes they would, they would not pray, and that was okay. And so in this one particular meeting, uh, this guy came in. He was brand new. I'd never seen him there before, and actually, I never saw him after. He never came back to the meeting. Uh, and he had been quiet through most of the meeting, so when it came his turn to pray, I totally expected that he was going to say pass. And instead, he bowed his head, And right there in the circle, he says, hey, God, it's me. I've had a really crappy day. And then he proceeded to talk to God and talk about his day as if he was right there in the chair next to him. And I was blown away by this man's prayer. And ever since then, praying in public has been much easier for me. It's not important how you say it. It's not important the posture you you take. But what is important is that you open your heart and you, and you pray uh, genuinely and real with God. Perhaps you felt like your prayers are not good enough, long enough, or filled with the right words. Don't do that. Just speak to God as if he was there with you. The greatest prayer ever prayed is recorded in John 17, and it takes about six minutes to reverently read it out loud. So this is not a particularly long prayer. In fact, it's not the longest prayer in the Bible. That's found in Nehemiah chapter 9. And this is not the first prayer that Jesus uh, prayed that's recorded in Scripture, but I think it's certainly his most important one. And there may not be much length, but as I said before, there's certainly a great deal of depth, and there's a lot of weight involved in this prayer. 
In fact, there's so much to learn from this prayer this morning that we're going to look at three things that I think we can learn about prayer just from this first verse. So before we get into that, let's quickly review where we are in this section of John. Just three days prior to this, uh, Jesus had entered Jerusalem in what has become known as the triumphal entry. Riding on a donkey's colt, he received He was received as the conquering king, come to save his people from Roman tyranny. The people, including the disciples, did not understand the salvation that Jesus was bringing. Next, the Passover is celebrated in the upper room, and chapters 13 through 17 are known today as the upper room discourse. It's in the upper room, and as they walk the mile or so toward Gethsemane, that Jesus gives his final warnings and instructions to the disciples. He's headed right now to the cross. Now, I don't think we can overemphasize the mental and emotional state of Jesus' disciples during this time. These 12 men had lived side by side with Jesus for three years. Let's just picture that in your mind for a second. You know, we, we have this Bible idea of Jesus, but we don't really have a, an experiential live side by side with Jesus kind of a picture. But the disciples had exactly that. They had done life with him. Some of them had left families and businesses to follow him. They heard him teach and they saw how he lived. They observed firsthand the miracles that he performed. They saw him run up against the authorities and the law, and walk away unharmed. They had put all their hope and all their trust in him. They were living the truth of John 13, 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And yet, they still didn't understand what was happening. I think sometimes we, we look at these disciples and we think, what a bunch of knuckleheads. And they were. But they're the same kind of knuckleheads that we are. Because oftentimes we read the scripture and we see plainly what Jesus teaches, but we don't really stop to understand it. We don't really realize the import of what's being said. So during this discourse, Jesus would tell and demonstrate things that would shock them and surprise them and cause dismay to them. He starts by washing their feet. Amazingly to me, he even washes the feet of Judas. Then, during the Last Supper, Jesus would reveal that Judas would betray him, and that Jesus himself was about to die, and that Peter would deny him. Now, these things must have greatly confused and worried the disciples. Jewish thought about the Messiah at that time was that he would come and overthrow Rome, and establish his kingdom on earth. Think for a minute about how excited they must have been as he rode into Jerusalem and the crowds laid down palm branches and and shouted Hosanna. They were thinking, this is it. Jesus has come. The Messiah is here. The whole world is going to change. Rome is going to be conquered, and we're going to be restored to our rightful place. There was no room in their minds at that point for a crucified Christ. But now he tells them the unthinkable. He's going away. Rather than conquering Rome, he's going away 
Rather than build a kingdom, he's laying down his life. In fact, in a few short hours, they will witness him betrayed, arrested, put on trial, abandoned, mocked, falsely accused, beaten, and finally crucified. I imagine that even the last words he spoke in chapter 16 probably caused them to have reason to doubt and fear. He said, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I'm pretty sure that these guys were like most of us, and that probably what they heard in that comment was, you're going to have trouble. The disciples' great expectations quickly turned to shock, heartbreak, and despair. So why is it so important? Why do I take the time to go over this so that we can understand how the disciples reacted to these events? Well, first, I think it's because we tend to be just like them. When things don't go the way we plan or the way we would like them, we get angry, we get confused, we get frightened. But mostly I think it's important because as we will see moving on in John, the change that occurs in these terrified, disbanded men is absolutely amazing after the resurrection. They turn from terrified and frightened to bold men of God ready to go out and spread the gospel. That change could only have occurred if this story was true. There is no other reason for them to experience such a a complete and total change in their lives. So in chapter 17, the group has left the upper room. They've made their way through the city of Jerusalem. They've crossed the Kidron Valley, and they stand on the banks of the Kidron Brook. And across the brook waits Gethsemane and the cross. Jesus knows this. And he's pretty much told the disciples this, but they still don't understand. And then, knowing all this, Jesus begins this most amazing prayer. In verse 1, he says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And so the first thing I think that we can note in this verse is that when we pray, we pray to the Father. Now you're probably thinking, well, duh, that's obvious. But you see, the traditional way for the Jews to pray during this time was to refer to God as our Father. The word that Jesus uses here is singular. It's Father. Essentially, my Father. The word Father acknowledges Jesus' submission and dependence, submission to and dependence on God, while at the same time, he's emphasizing his equality with God as his Son. The relationship that we see displayed here between Jesus and God is intimate, it's familial, it's personal. That kind of relationship to God was completely foreign to the Jews of Jesus' time. In fact, to them it was blasphemous. But here's the thing about praying to my Father, about praying to God, to God the Father. Through Christ, anyone who believes in him is granted that same spiritual intimacy with God. John 1, 12 through 13 says, 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then in Galatians 4, 4 through 7, we read this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I believe that we often take this position, this standing with God for granted. We really need to not do that. When we believe and trust in Jesus, we become a part of God's family. When we pray to the Father, we do so as little children speaking to Abba Father, literally Daddy. When we pray to him as children in his will, as a son and an heir, God wants to answer our prayers. He wants to hear them. He wants to know our heart. It's because we're speaking as children to our Father. Matthew 7:11 says, "If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him?" Excuse me. When we pray to our Father, God's heart reaches out in love to his own. And he longs to share good things with us. He longs to share good things with his children. Our relationship as sons and daughters is something we should develop and appreciate, not something we should take for granted. And there's another important aspect to Jesus' use of my father. Not only is he claiming to be the son of God and therefore equal to God, but he's also demonstrating his distinctness from God. Obviously, he's not praying to himself in this verse. This is God the Son praying to God the Father. In this prayer, Jesus demonstrates an important theological truth that the Son is equal to the Father, but at the same time, he is distinct from him. The Son is a distinct person within the Godhead. By calling God his Father, Jesus is pointing to the fundamental reality of the Trinity. Now, technically, I think we could pray to any person of the Trinity, and I know, I'm sure sometimes you've prayed to Jesus, you've prayed to God. We could even pray to the Holy Spirit because actually they are all God. But each person in the Trinity is also a distinct person, and each person in the Trinity has distinctive roles. And the pattern of prayer that we see most often in Scripture is praying to the Father in the name of the Son and through the power of the Spirit. The second thing that I think we can learn from this verse is that we must be committed to God's will. Now, there's a song by a Christian artist named Bob Bennett. He's probably, none of you know him. He's from a whole long time ago. Uh, but he happens to be one of my wife and I's favorite uh, Christian singers. 
And this song says, Jesus, will you heal me? I've got a terminal disease. It's hard for me to talk to you unless I'm driven to my knees. And I confess that that's been true in my own life. But prayer should not be our last resort, but rather it should be our constant direction. And all too often, it's hard for us to pray for the, for the, the, the easy things that are difficult. You know, we have difficult things that are super heavy and super difficult. And we have difficult things that are just not so heavy. We think we can take care of those on our own. And so we tend to pray for those impossible things, uh, the bad diagnosis from the doctor, the loss of a job. But we tend not to pray, I think, for my cold or in, in gratitude to the things that God is doing for, it, for us and, and through us. There's a story about a storm that passed over the Florida coast and left a great deal of wreckage behind. The next day, as men were cleaning up their little town, one man said to another, I'm not ashamed to admit that I prayed during that storm last night. And the man's friend replied, Yes, I'm sure the Lord heard many new voices last night. You see, isn't that the way we tend to live our lives? It's when the emergency comes when the sudden thing that is just beyond our control comes, that's when we turn to God. And really what God wants is he wants to hear from us and he wants us to be committed to doing his will, not just in those big heavy things, but in everything we do. You see, prayer is not just one of those little red boxes that we see in buildings that say, open in case of emergency. I personally enjoy sharing good things with my kids. Debbie and I have raised five children. And uh, I will tell you that if they only spoke to me when they were in trouble or they needed something, our relationship would deteriorate pretty quickly. I, I, I want to help them when they're in trouble, but that's not the only time I want to hear from them. I want to help them when they're facing a crisis, but that's not the only time I want to hear from them. And it's the same way with God. Our relationship should be one where we speak to God constantly. We tell him about the good things. We thank him for the blessings we receive. We thank him for the trials that we face. But we also turn to him in times of emergency. Unless we do the will of God, our living will contradict our prayers. Jesus' entire life was an example of him living in and doing the will of God the Father. His life is an example of the connection between prayer and the practice of God's will. We see in the scripture over and over and over again, Jesus taking time out to pray. We see that he, takes, that he leaves the crowds and he goes away to spend time with his Father. Mark 6.46 says, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. And then in Luke 5.16, we see, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. You see, Jesus has hundreds of people following after him, clamoring for his attention. Heal me, help me, teach me. But he still takes time to separate himself from that noise and all of that commotion 
to spend time with God the Father so that he can continue to do God's will. Luke 6, 2 says, It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer. I don't know about you, but 10 minutes is difficult for me sometimes. The whole night blows my mind. But this is the kind of relationship that Jesus had with God the Father. So our text says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said to Father, and said to the Father, the hour has come. Now what hour is Jesus talking about here? Well, he's talking about the hour for which he had come into the world. The hour that he would die on the cross, be buried, rise again, and finish the great work of redemption. Jesus is facing a horrible, painful, disastrous, wondrous, joyful, redemptive hour. And it has finally arrived as he begins this prayer. Jesus' sole focus was to do the will of his Father. In John 6.38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus was committed to do the will of God right up to and including that final hour that would bring him to face the cross. Matthew 26.39 says, And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, plans made in eternity past were finally reaching their appointed time. The hour had come in which the Son of Man would offer himself as the perfect and only atoning sacrifice for sin. It was the hour of Christ's triumph over the prince of this world and the kingdom of darkness, an hour of supreme submission of the Son to the Father. See, in Jesus... We see the relationship between prayer and the practice of God's will that helps us understand such promises as Psalm 37.4, which says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If we delight ourselves in the Lord, and we seek to please him by doing his will, then something begins to happen to the desires of our heart. His desires become our desires. Then we're able to say with Jesus, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's John 4.34. Our goal for our prayers is for them to reflect God's desires in our own heart. You see, all too often, we treat God like he was a genie. We, say, we think that we can just go to God and, and ask for whatever we want, and oftentimes those desires are not in line with God's will. And God wants to grant our desires. He says right here, he wants to grant the desires of our heart. But those desires have to come from a heart that is in submission to God, that is seeking to do his will, and those desires have to be within the will of God. 
And as long as we're talking about the will of God, I think we need to recognize that there's a price to pay when we sincerely pray in the will of God. Jesus was about to receive the cup from his father's hand. The father had prepared the cup and the hour had come. But Jesus was not afraid. He knew what was facing him. And when Peter tries to protect Jesus, Jesus rebukes him and he says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? It's John 18, 11. See, we never need to fear the will of God. And if we are in the will of God, we never need to fear the answers that he gives to our prayers. If a son asks for bread, will he receive a stone? If he asks for a fish, will his father give him a snake? We may not always like God's answers, but we do know that we can trust them. And even when God doesn't answer, and let's face it, there's times when we pray and we wait and we pray and we wait and we just don't hear an answer. Even in those times, we know that when we're in the will of God, we can be patient and trust his silence. I don't know about you guys, but God's silence is one of the most difficult times for me because I want to I do something. I want to change something. I want to fix something. But I've come to learn that when God is silent, when I'm not hearing the answer to those prayers, that what I need to do is wait and be patient and trust and rest that God's will will be accomplished in my life. Now God in his mercy can and does answer emergency prayers. He, answers, he has answered emergency prayers in my life many times. <clears throat> I will tell you one time, we were uh, not in a financially healthy state. And um, I had been, I was working in Orange County and we lived in Riverside County. And if you're from California, you know that's a pretty decent commute. And uh, we got down towards the end of the week and it was payday week and I didn't have enough money to put gas in the car. We literally were so out of money, I couldn't put $10 in the car to make it to work in order to pick up my paycheck. Back then, they didn't have direct deposit. And so we kind of mumbled and grumbled, and, and I went out to the garage, and I collected all the aluminum cans that had built up there and crushed them and put them in a bag and took them to the recycler, and I got like $10 or $12, and that got me through gas through to the end of the week. And uh, got my paycheck, and we went to church that Sunday. And one of the elders of the church came up to me and said, Mark, how's it going? And I was still pretty unhappy. I felt that uh, God had left me, ha left me hanging. Um, I mean, I had to cash in aluminum cans to get to work, for crying out loud. And I said to him, it's not going very well. I actually had to cash in aluminum cans to get enough gas to go to work. And he looked at me and he said, Thank God for aluminum cans. <laughs> and I went, duh, what's wrong with me? And so we need to trust God. We need to trust that when we are in his will, when we are praying in his will, that he will answer our prayers. And yes, as I said, he will answer emergency prayers, 
but he prefers that we be in constant communication with him. In fact, I'm convinced that if we seek to live in his will, we will probably have fewer emergencies. I'm not saying we won't have any, but I think we will have fewer. If prayer is an interruption to our lives, then something's wrong. Like our breathing, our praying should become so much a part of our lives that we're often not even aware that we're doing it. So the last thing I want to pull from this verse is that the glory of God should be our primary concern. I've been for some reason recently praying, uh, God, as I close a prayer, I pray, God, let this be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And so it kind of surprised me when I read this verse and, and suddenly I realized that glorifying God should be of our primary concern. The text says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said to Father, said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. The word glory is used in one form or another seven or eight times in this prayer, depending on the translation you're reading. What does that word mean? What does glory mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word translated glory means weight, that which is important and honorable. It's something that that has substance to it. Paul's phrase, an eternal weight of glory, in 2 Corinthians 4.17, carries this idea, the idea of, of weight, of something that's important and honorable and heavy. In the New Testament, the Greek word translated glory means opinion or fame, and it's good opinion and good fame, not infamous. The theologians tell us that the glory of God is the measure of all that he is, the manifestation of his character. The glory of God is not an attribute of God, but it is instead the sum of all of his attributes. He is glorious in wisdom and power. He is glorious in his mighty works and in truth. He is glorious in justice and in mercy, and he's glorious in the grace that he bestows upon us. Jesus' main focus had always been to glorify his Father, perfectly submitting to the Father's will. Perhaps, even ironically, it is through the cross, the most shameful of deaths, that the Son of God displays infinite glory. The thing that seemed to be the worst possible outcome to the disciples was in reality Jesus' ultimate victory, the fulfillment of God's will for the salvation of man. C.S. Lewis wrote, The glory of God and, as our only means of glorifying him, the salvation of human souls is the real business of life. You see, there is nothing more glorious than bringing an unbeliever into a right relationship with God. God's glory is displayed in that act more than anything else. When Jesus asked the Father, glorify your Son, he was asking that the eternal plan of redemption be fulfilled exactly as it had been planned. This was Jesus' only request for himself in this prayer. 
that the Father would give him the glory through his death, resurrection, ascension, and crowning as king. In turn, Jesus glorifies the Father because God's will is fulfilled in Christ on the cross. This request is not one of self-interest. Jesus is not asking for something that is, that is something for himself because let's face it, this request involves him going to the cross. The cross displays God's glory, revealing his righteousness, his justice, and his holiness in requiring the precious blood of his son, a lamb unblemished and spotless, as a payment for his holy wrath against sin. At the same time, it demonstrates his immense grace and mercy and love in sending his only son to die for the utterly undeserving, us, you, me. Jesus died when we did not deserve that sacrifice. Friends, all of us here have a terminal disease. And that disease is the power of sin over our lives. And do you know why sin has any power over you at all? Well, I'm going to tell you why, and it's a harsh answer. Sin has power over you because you love it. Sin is pleasurable for a time. And that's a harsh thing to think about, and it's a harsh thing for me to say, but it's true. Jesus said, And this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Not only do you love sin, not only do we love sin, but we're powerless against it. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is the good news of the gospel. That we are hopelessly lost and condemned in the presence of a holy and just God. We are unable, utterly unable, to save ourselves from our sin nature. But the good news is that we don't have to. Jesus has done that for us. He took our sin punishment on himself on the cross. Until you understand your utter helplessness in the presence of a holy God, you will not understand or appreciate your desperate need for a perfect Savior. And if you understand that here today, let me think, tell you that you need to be reminded of it from time to time. Because... Like the sinful people that we are, we tend to forget how fortunate we are that God sent his son to die in our place, to bear the punishment that we so rightly deserve. Without Christ, there is no hope for any of us. I had a pastor once who used to say, we are all no hopes. So as Jesus prayed this prayer, just hours before the cross, he rejoiced, knowing that God's will for the redemption of sinners was about to occur in time and space. The hour had finally come 
that he had pro- that had been promised since before time began he was ready to accomplish god's will and face the cross that cost would be immense but the glorious result would be eternal let's stand and pray Father God, we come before you today and confess that we are all utterly, totally, and completely lost and hopeless without Christ. We confess our sin to you, Lord, and not just the sins that, um, that are obvious, but also those secret sins, those sins that we tend to want to hang on to. We confess those to you, Lord, and we ask for your forgiveness for them. Father, I pray that you would continue to strengthen us and teach us through your word, through our relationship with Christ. I pray, God, that we would constantly be reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus made, that we would constantly understand that without him, our position in standing before you is a position of lostness and eternal damnation. I pray, God, that we would learn to pray in such a way that it becomes like breathing. And that through praying constantly, we would be committed to doing your will, to glorifying you in everything we do. We oftentimes tend to think of glorifying you as a ministry work or a service work, but God, everything we do is to your glory. Our secular work And really, Lord, there is no such thing as secular work. But the way we live our lives, the work we do in the workplace, the way we are with our families, the way we are in the community, and certainly the way we live and serve in the church, these things are all things that we do for your glory. Help us, God, to know your will, to be bold in following your will, and to teach and preach Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. We love you, God. We thank you for your many blessings. We ask these things for your glory and in Jesus' name, amen.